Well, uh, hey, so if you're new with us, we are continuing uh, in our series of messages through the book of Genesis, and, and we've just been uh, kind of trucking along through it, uh, not, not skipping anything, looking at everything, and, and this morning you will see uh, that, uh, that it's one of those things that if there are some verses you could skip over, these would probably be the ones you'd, you'd pick, all right? We're talking about Nephilim and all kinds of stuff this morning, so it's going to be it's going to be a good morning. Yeah, I was thinking this, this morning, as, as we're going to be looking about um, depravity and, and sin's pervasiveness in the world, I was thinking, you know, if you, ask, if you were to ask someone the question, you know, what's wrong with the world today, um, they would tell you, and they would tell you on a place like Facebook or something like that. But if you can think way back in time, there was, there was a place where people talked about things like this in opinion-led uh, articles in newspapers. And one of my favorite authors, G.K. Chesterton, responded to one of these uh, in, a, in, a, in a newspaper. And uh, the question that they put out uh, to the authors that were in this group was this, what is wrong with the world? in your opinion. As imagine, you know, you have all these different worldviews, they're going to respond differently because of that. GK simply wrote very simply to them, uh, regarding your question, what's wrong with the world? I am, sincerely, GK Chesterson. Now, I think this is the magic bullet question or answer for every Christian that we have for what's wrong with the world. You know, the the scriptures talk about it over and over and over again, and we're going to really see the heartbeat of it in Genesis Genesis 6 today, but I want to show you two passages, one from Romans 3 and then one from Jesus in Matthew 7. Romans 3 says this, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Jesus goes on to say it a different way in, in the Sermon on the Mount. So what do we do with this reality that no one is good? Jesus talks about judging like this. He says this, judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then he gives this great hyperbole metaphor for us. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will be able to clearly see the speck that is in your brother's eye. You see, the world is full of people today that want to tell you what is wrong with the world. And the Bible has one answer. It's us. And so what we're going to be working on today as we look at Genesis 6 is we're, we're, I'm going to invite you to take up a new occupation. We're all lumberjacks. You know, we're all logging today. We're all attempting with everything in us to take these logs that are out of our eyes so that we can actually let the gospel flow through our lives and change the world. So let's dig into uh, the scripture. If you've got a Bible, let's open to Genesis 6 today. And here's our big idea of where we're heading today. Increasing awareness of sin is the only thing that can give us increasing joy in grace. Increasing awareness of sin. You see, the the pervasiveness of sin is not the issue. It's our awareness of the pervasiveness of sin, not just in the world, but in our own hearts. That's the issue. That's the thing we have to deal with today. And dealing with that is the only thing that will give us joy in God's grace, his provision for us. So let's, uh, let's look at Genesis 6 together. Um, I've got I've to do a little bit of background for those of you that may have not been with us 
because it's gonna really help us interpret the Bible. Uh, As one of my seminary professors used to say, context is king. And what he meant by that was this. You've got to see what's going on around the passage because it helps you interpret what's going on uh, in the passage that you're looking at. And so we're going to look at that. So last week we talked about Cain and Abel. And the the story goes like this. Um, Cain was jealous of his brother's offering. uh, And he took out revenge on his brother because the Lord didn't approve of Cain's offering to the Lord because he offered it in a half-hearted way. He didn't offer it with faith. Uh, Abel made his offering to the Lord, his worship to the Lord from a place of sacrifice and also acknowledging the fact that he was alienated from God and he sacrificed an animal, blood that would be shed that would speak uh, on his behalf. And so we see that happening, but if you flip back even one chapter before that in Genesis 3, there was this promise that was made. And the promise was this, Uh, it it was through actually how God cursed um, Adam, Eve, and the serpent, but there was a promise that was made, and the promise was this, that there would be two offsprings that would come out of the world now. There would be one that would be of, of, um, of the serpent. The scriptures say this in John 8, 44, that the, the father of lies will have descendants, basically. And we see that lived out in Cain and his offspring. But we also see this promise line that comes from Jesus, that, that comes from the woman. And the promise in Genesis three fifteen, the first place we see God's plan for Jesus, is that, that Jesus would come along, an offspring of Eve, and he would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. That's the promise. And so what we see throughout the Bible is this, this link from Adam to Jesus. And so we see, read these genealogies and we look at all these things. And so what we see with, with uh, the offspring of Cain is that there's this, if you, if you want to read this, it starts in uh, chapter 4, verse 17. There's offspring of Cain. One of these guys' name is Lamech. And Lamech... Um, starts to see sin spread more and more through his own life. One day, he, uh, a guy hurts him in, in a way, wounds him in some way. The Bible's not specific. But he kind of goes off this guy and murders him, just like, his, like, just like Cain did. And, and, um, and, then he's, and then he starts taking more than one wife. And, and we see sin just start to be pervasive, that, it, that, that, that they choose not to live within God's design. And so that's key to remember because what we pick up on in Genesis 6 is we see that playing out further and further and further, that, that even though descendants multiply, sin is multiplying as well. But the story doesn't stop there. At the end of chapter four, there's this descendant uh, of of, um, Adam and Eve that's born, and his name is Abel. Abel is, I'm sorry, not Abel, but Seth. It is the continued kind of line of blessing that Abel represented. And Abel has these offsprings too. And so what you read in Genesis chapter five is the stories of all these guys that lived eight to 900 years old. And then they have these descendants that multiply and they they follow God. And so that's key to remember the genealogy because it connects us to Jesus. Uh, And so... um, so all of this is to, is, to, is to help us interpret what's happening in chapter six, which is one of the most mysterious and mystifying passages in the Bible. And we're gonna do our best to get into it today. So let's, let's start picking up. I'm gonna read the first four verses of Genesis six. And then as you're gonna see, we're gonna need to park on it for a bit. So let's start in verse one. Genesis six says this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives as many as they chose, just like uh, Lamech did, right? Cain's son. 
Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Are y'all ready for this? Let's get into it. Verse one here. Verse one is interesting. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, the daughters were born to them. What this indicates to us is that God's, God's grace is still blessing the world. People are still able to have children. That was the the thing the whole promise landed on in Genesis 3. But even before that, the the cultural mandate was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? So we see God's grace is still allowing uh, procreation to happen. It hooks us in, but hooks us into the promises of God. But the problem is, is that sin is multiplying too. So verse two, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives as many as they chose. Okay, here's the big boy. What in the world is Moses talking about here? And why did he not give us more answers, right? It's gonna be one of the first things I wanna ask uh, the Lord when I meet him in glory. My first question is this, who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? There is a whole host of interpretations on this. The first question is this, are sons of God angels? Is he talking about a procreation between angels and humanity? Fallen angels and and humanity. That's what some people interpret this as. And here's how they get there. In in places like Job chapter two, verse one, sons of God are referred to as angels. Um, And so the interpretation is that they are intermarrying and having these kind of super beast children. That's one of the interpretations of this. It seems, it seems a little bit odd to me, but there's godly men and women that interpret it that way. Uh, I, I don't particularly take that interpretation of this. One of the reasons why is because it is such an interruption to the text. It just doesn't seem to make sense. But also, the other thing that, that you got to remember is that God's people are also called sons of God. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Or how about Romans chapter 8, verse 14? For all who are led by the Spirit, that is, filled with the Holy Spirit, Christians are sons of God. So this can be angels or this could be Christians, right? This could be followers of God. The other thing that makes me think that this text is not talking about angels is Matthew 22, which says this. In the resurrection... That is, in, in the life to come, they neither marry or are given a marriage. He's, he's saying that humanity doesn't, there's no need to marry because it was all pointing to Christ the whole time. But he says, we're like angels in heaven. So evidently, angels do not marry. And so that helps us. That gives us some boundaries. And see, this kind of helps us read the Bible when we think about the context of it, right? And we look at the whole scope of scripture. So that's why I don't think he's talking about angels here. But the, the context supports it as well. Because when I go back and we talk about the offspring, the, the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, I think it supports this conclusion that, that the, the, that the, that the uh, daughters of the woman um, are, are the descendants of Cain and the sons of God are those that are regenerate descendants of Seth. And so we see these, these, these two offsprings continuing to go throughout creation. That, that's kind of how I see this. 
And the other piece of this is, is that in the Bible, the scriptures strongly, strongly require Christians to only marry other Christians, right? The, the book of Corinthians talks about how dangerous it is to be unequally yoked. And I think we're seeing that play out in Genesis chapter six. We're seeing the danger of being unequally yoked. And when you think about folks that are, um, that are engaged to be married, I know several of them in the church or we've recently married them. You know, engaged couples typically think about a lot of things. They think about, uh, you know, what's life going to be like together. They think about physical attraction. Um, they think about finances. Uh, they think about common interest and hobbies. Uh, but Christians are to think about one thing above all things, and that is the spiritual condition of their prospective spouse. Because when the two become one flesh, if one does not have their heart set on God, it becomes an absolute disaster. So I think this all kind of ties in together. And so the question for us is how often do I think about the importance of having a life consecrated to the Lord, being set apart to the Lord? How often is my life mingled in the world's activities and desires? And how does that affect not only myself, but the body of believers that I worship among? Because I think there are huge consequences to covering up sin and to living in, in that kind of a way. But the, the point about this whole interpretation of this verse that's really kind of crazy uh, is, is that it doesn't really matter which route you take on what it means. The, the point is this, is the world at this point is absolutely chaotic and the only possible way that it's gonna be redeemable is by God's grace. That's what we see there. We go on to verse three, uh, which is another interesting verse where the Lord says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he's flesh. His day shall be 120 years old. Some people believe that this verse means that you can't live to be older than 120 years old. The, the problem is that in Genesis 11, we have a whole host of guys that lived for four or 500 years. And apparently in 1997, there was a lady that lived to be 122 in the UK. So, I mean, there you have that. So I don't, I don't think that's the best interpretation for that passage, but there's a far better interpretation for that passage that is the amount of time that will go from that decree that God makes until God judges the world through a flood. The time that Moses or that Noah will take to build the, the boat. The ark. I think that's the best interpretation of that, that God is going to judge the world. He's going to flood the world. And, it, and it's gonna be 120 years until that happens. Um, the, the, if this wasn't chaotic enough, let's, we've got the Nephilim now. Brandon, I probably should have had you preach this week. I mean, this is... Uh, so let me read this for you here. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, so some folks think that the Nephilim are the offspring of this whole angel and humanity interaction, okay? That these kind of have these super beasts. Um, the word Nephilim is only mentioned one other time in the Bible. And it's mentioned in Numbers chapter 13. And in Numbers 13, it is the place where, where uh, Caleb and the other spies go into the land of Canaan and they spy out the promised land. Do you remember when they get to the promised land, they sneak in, they're looking and they see what they call Nephilim. And, and do you remember what their response was? They said, we are like what? Grasshoppers compared to them. That they are these huge monsters of men. And they were so terrified and discouraged when they came back uh, to, to, to where they were hiding out uh, and they talked with God's people about it. So uh, 
what we know about Nephilim is this, and if anybody pretends to have any more information than this, they're lying to you. Um, <laughs> here's, what, here's what we know about it, that they were an early division of race and humanity uh, that existed before and after the flood, okay? So not only before, but after the flood, like Genesis 6 says and Numbers 13, and they were huge, and because of their size and stature, they were famous or renowned because of that. And they were, they were evil people. Some people speculate that maybe Goliath was a Nephilim. You know, I, I don't know. I'm not gonna speculate on that. It's not worth our time because it takes us away from the main point. But there were these huge race of people that existed before that. So what we see here is this, is that sin is running rampant and it's, it's, it's disorderly, it's chaotic. But the main thing is this, is that God is still present and he's still gracious, even though life is absolutely chaotic and the world is chaotic. So the, the next thing that we see here is, um, is that God has decided um, that he will execute judgment on sinners. That because he's just and holy in and of himself, he can't just let sinners off the hook. And so let's read verses five through seven here to look at God's response to what's happening in the world. And I want you to listen, not only for the activity of what God is going to do, but the heart of God. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it, it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot man out for whom I've created from the face of the land, man, animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heaven, for I'm sorry that I have made them. You hear God's heart here. And, and I think, you know, if we're honest, sometimes we, we feel like God thinks this about us right now, don't we? We feel, you wake up in the morning, you, you just feel the shame of God in your life. You, 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 feel, you feel judged, you feel imperfect, and you, you feel just incapacitated for anything that anything good could possibly come from your life. We feel that some days. And, and when we feel that, we're feeling the justice of God flow down to us. The problem is it's not the end of the story of who God is. God is perfectly just and he will always execute judgment on sinners because he can't be trusted if he's not just. But he's also a God of love. So the justice of God and the love of God have to be reconciled. And the only way that they could ever be reconciled is through Christ, who perfectly receives, or through his perfect life, he receives all of God's wrath poured out in Genesis 6 and beyond for sin. He has to receive it all. But also in the sinless life of Jesus and the resurrection, believers in Christ get to experience the love of God that has existed before the beginning of the world, before God regretted what he had saw, the, the, the thoughts that are pleasing about us. And so that's what we see happen here. But we, we really need to lean in a little bit further before we get to the good news of Christ to, to unpack what's happening here. Jeremiah 17, 9 talks also about this, 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 this phrase, intentions of the heart. Um, he says this, the heart, the center of who we are as, as image bearers of God is deceitful above all things. That means the first, the most prevalent quality of the human heart that is not redeemed by Jesus is deceit. And it's desperately sick. 
Who can understand it? This is why, church, follow your heart is terrible advice, amen? It's terrible advice. Your heart is deceitful. Only when it's redeemed in Christ will your heart instruct your, your, your path in a, in a righteous way. Because what sin always does is it promises pleasure, but it never tells you about the pain. When we experience the pain of sin, when our sin finally catches up to us, when we realize that the devil was selling us a bill of goods when we took the bait of sin, where he wasn't telling Adam and Eve that a third of the angels had fallen from heaven, from God's righteousness, and would spend a perpetual eternity away from God in damnation and never be before his face again, he didn't tell us that. Who will be with you in that moment? When the judgment of God falls and you square it, because the reality of this passage is that the devil isn't transparent. He's an absolute liar. And when we sin, we, we, we agree with him. So how does God respond to that nature that lives inside of each of us? Because that, that theologically, this is called total depravity. That, 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 that we are so depraved that we can't possibly muster up anything that would be pleasing to God in and of ourselves. How does he respond? He responds swiftly and directly. He makes a decision to give humanity what they deserve. He has to because he's just. And he does this for everyone except a family of eight people. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Now, don't go thinking that Noah and his boys are perfect little angels, okay? Because they're not. You'll read about that. You remember the situation when Noah, he gets drunk and his boys find him. It's crazy, all right? The book of Genesis is crazy, all right? We're gonna find that, but God, here, the point is this, is that God is gracious. Even in our sin, if we repent, God is more than willing to show us grace. But he also has to, he has to dole out the consequences of sin. And when he, when it, when it, this phrase that it grieves his heart, he's in essence looking down at humanity saying, what have I done? What is this monster that I've, that I've made? And that, that phrase, every intention, it, in, in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, it's the same word that God uses when he talks about forming mankind and giving them purpose, all right? So basically what he's saying is that now the, the, the dominion that he's given humanity to exercise in the world he's created us with is now only used for evil all the time. Did you hear that? There's no... This is why we can say, when we look at that little newborn that's cute, you dirty, rotten sinner. Because, because even, in, even in the moments that we think that we're trying to please God, apart from Jesus, we're still living out of our sin nature. It doesn't matter what your life looks like. If you are not resting and relying on the grace of God, you're in sin. You see, we like this idea of justice except when we think about what it would earn us, right? We're, we're all about justice as Christians, and we want to see it happen. We want justice for others, but do we really want it for ourselves? Only Christians can say, give me justice, give me justice. And what we're saying is, give me Christ. Give me all of the cross that God has for me. Give it all to me. And Jesus says that when he returns... It's going to be just like the scene in Genesis 6, except for the flood and all of the animals being flooded out as well, all right? He said it's gonna be just the same. Listen to Matthew chapter 24. It's where the scripture ties in what happens in Genesis 6 with Jesus. He says, 
For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. They were partying, right? I mean, they were just having a great time in their sin until the day when Noah entered the ark and God shut the door. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. I mean, can you imagine the people that tried to pry the doors of that ark open as God shut it when the floodwaters began to rise? That's the scene of when Jesus returns right there. I mean, we looked at it a few weeks ago, but in Revelation, scriptures say that people are gonna wish that rocks would fall on them when they see the holiness of God. Church, the holiness of God is not a problem for Christians. We see that we're not God, that we're not holy, but that his spirit is sanctifying us. This is why that we see that we've got to address sin early, often, consistently in our lives if we ever want to experience the joy that God has for us in this world. Our last point is this. I've got some good news for you. Only Jesus can breathe life into a culture of death. How can we escape? How can we escape this type of judgment against sin? It's only by grace. It's only by grace. Let's look at Genesis 6, 8 here. So that all this bad stuff's happening. God regretted humanity that he made. And Genesis 6, 8 says this, but Noah found favor, the same word for grace in the Hebrew, in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. Now, again, we just said that Noah, there's nothing special about Noah. I mean, he, was, he tried to live by faith, right? He was, but, but it was God's love that he'd set on him and he chose Noah for this mission. That's what makes Noah distinct. It's God's love and his, rec- his receipt of that grace. And so God set his love on Noah in such a way that his family was preserved. So Noah would have to obey. He'd have to spend the next 120 years living by faith. Day in, day out, picking up nails, cutting trees. People hadn't really seen a flood before. He's making a boat. Maybe there are even no boats until this time, right? They think he's crazy. Day in, day out. I'm sure he had doubts, but he persevered in it. Because the reality is this, is grace is the only way that we escape judgment. It's the only way. It's it's not, you know, maybe I've got enough good works. Uh, Maybe I've done enough in my life. Maybe I've given enough. Uh, maybe I've lived my life in such a way that God sees me. If our answer at the end of time is anything other uh, for the question, why should Jesus receive us into his kingdom? If it's anything other than by your grace and mercy, we got the wrong answer. Nothing else is the answer other than Christ. Nothing. And it's the only way that we escape judgment. And, and I want to come back to our big idea and just give you just a tool to, to take away from here that'll help us remember this and live in this. Our big idea was this, is that increasing awareness of sin is the only thing that can give us increasing joy in grace. So as we park here, the, the main thing God's been doing with his people in Genesis is relating to them by showing the goodness of himself and his holiness and their design, but also their honesty about sin. What does God do when Adam and Eve sin? He comes and he basically interrogates them to get them to the point of what? Confession, confessing their sin. He was setting in place a model for how we could be made right with God in a post-fall world. 
It's through being honest about our sin. The same thing plays out with Cain. When, when Cain kills his brother and, and uh, he goes on like, you know, nothing's happened, God comes to him and what does he do to him in the field? He interrogates him. What have you done, Cain? I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And he, and he goes on and he lists these excuses and he never confesses his sin. So we have this model of, of Adam and Eve who confess their sin. They say, yes, I ate it. They made a bunch of excuses first, but they finally get down to it. And that's, that's good enough for God. Then we have this model of Cain, one who doesn't confess his sin, one that steps aside, one that is cursed. And it shows us the two ways to live with sin, doesn't it? One way to live is in the light. The other way to live is in the dark. And, and, and that's the only hope that we have is living in the light with our sin because grace is the only way we escape judgment. All of God's wrath has been poured out on Jesus Christ. All of it. More than Genesis 6, all of God's wrath poured out on Jesus for the past, present, and future sins of all of God's saints. That, that's what happened on the cross. And Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because all of his wrath was poured out. There was a separation between the Father and the Son for the very first time because Jesus was bearing the weight of all of the sins of the world. And in his death, Jesus took the sins of all the saints, the floodwaters of judgment, down to the grave, and he buried them there forever, and he came up with new life for those that will follow God. That is the hope that you and I have in Christ. It is not cleaning ourselves up to, be, to look less sinful than we are. He said it again that it's a matter of the heart, not the action, because what flows out of our lives started in our heart. Confession keeps us needy and close to God through Christ. And that's the only way we'll turn from sin. Let me show you this, this chart. It's Richard Lovelace put this together years ago, but it's really helpful. When you think about your Christian walk, um, there is a moment that, that, that in which you, you lived your life apart from a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. You lived your life in such a way that maybe you did some, some, some good things and you weren't as bad as the other kids or the other people, but you lived before Jesus like hell. You lived like these Genesis 6 people. But something happened when you heard about the provision of grace in Christ. Your heart responded to it in faith. And the scripture said that when that happens, we are born again to a living hope, a hope that's different than I hope I don't get caught in my sin. And what happens at that point is that the work of Christ is applied to the hearts of believers. And, and what happens in the Christian journey is that we uh, have an increasing awareness of how holy God is. Those Isaiah 6 moments. We say, woe is me. I'm an unclean man and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Now, there's no hope for me. We come to those moments because we see the holiness of God. Church, may we be a people that's not afraid to see the holiness of God. But we also see this other thing that happens, right? We begin to see God's holiness, and, and it's like he was more holy than we thought he was when we first became a believer. But we see this other side, this Genesis 6, every intention of our hearts is always evil continuously. And it, it causes us to despair when we see our sin. And we think, God, if God only knew who I was, he would never love me. And then in those moments, we're tempted to pretend that we're not as bad as we are. 
We're tempted to say, I can't confess that sin again because I just confessed it last week and I did it again. Or we're tempted to perform and say, you know, I'm really a lot better than I was back when I received Christ. And the problem with that is, is that that's not how God designed the church to live. He designed us to live in such a way that the cross swells in our hearts as we think about the work of Christ. And that changes everything about us because we see that he is so perfect and he is so good and we are so pitiful and so bad, but where sin abounded, what happened? Grace abounded more. You can never out the grace of God. And when we live that way, it changes the world, church. We're not afraid to see what's inside of us because Christ died for it. This is why 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 says this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That means that at any moment in your life, if you say, I'm not in sin, you are a liar and you are living out of that Jeremiah 17 deceptive heart. If, if, if you are at a point in your life where you're like, yeah, I've kind of graduated from that. I don't really sin anymore. You're not living in God's reality. But if we confess our sins, there's another way to live. So the one way to live is to say, I have no sin, which is the pretending and the performing that God's not holy and we're not sinful. But the other way to live is to confess our sins because we see that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, which Forgiven people are the only ones that get to enter the kingdom of heaven and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. So the life of a Christian is a life of increasing awareness of sin, increasing confession of sin, and increased outpouring of God's grace upon our lives. That's what maturity looks like. This is why the apostle Paul, whenever he first became a believer in that Damascus Road experience, he said that, that he was the least of all the apostles. That was his self-awareness of him. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of the 13th man. I'm not too bad, right? You know what he said at the end of his life? I'm the chief of sinners. But, but wait, Paul, did, did your life get worse? Guys, we're not here if Paul didn't plant the church, right? We're not here. His life was full of righteousness, but his soul and his heart became more aware of the sinful state that he existed in, which made him needier and needier of grace. This is why confession is a pattern of every day of every believer's life if they're taking advantage of the grace of God. I mean, think about it like this. God has given this, this inheritance this inheritance of the riches of his grace, that we can never out sin, it, sin his grace, that we, we could never withdraw more than he could provide for us. Yet we leave the account balance at nearly 100% most of our lives because we think that God's disappointed with us. Church, God knows you. He knows every single thing, every single intention of your heart. And he has given all of himself to make you one with him through Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you that your idea of maturity and our idea of maturity are two different things. Father, we thank you that, that we cannot out the grace that you have provided for us. Lord, that doesn't, that doesn't make us fearful that we'll just take advantage of you. Of course we take advantage of you, Lord. You know our hearts. You know that we take advantage of you. But there's something about us being honest about who we are before you that frees us up and liberates us to no longer be enslaved to the deceptive power of sin. And so, Father, we pray that you would 
that you would unlock our hearts this morning. You would soften them to such a way where shame, fear of judgment, fear of man would no longer get between us and fullness of joy and grace. So Father, I pray for my friends this morning as they consider these words from your word that we would get all of Jesus's blood, all of his perfect life and death, all of his resurrection that we can possibly receive this morning. Because the world needs to hear about the fullness of your son and his provision for us. And we pray that in Christ's name, amen.